All right, good morning, everybody. Man, it's so good to be together. I love worshiping with y'all. And what some great songs this morning. Uh, love, that, uh, love that song, J.M., you were leading there. Just asking the Holy Spirit to breathe on his church. Powerful, powerful stuff. All right, you guys ready to dig into the word? Okay, we're back in the book of Acts together. Um, missed you guys last week. Thank you, Tucker, for uh, preaching the word. Um, Really proud of uh, Tucker's growth. He's just growing in the Lord. One day he's going to grow up to where he doesn't pick on his pastor when he's away and uh, make fun of me. But uh, no, that's all in fun. He, no, he won't. Okay, well, that's good dose of reality there. All right, Book of Acts. So what I want to do today, a little different. You know, what we've been doing is just taking a chunk of scripture at a time and digging into that text and sort of unearthing the truths that are there. What I want to do today is take a some kind of a sweeping look. At the book and prepare for the last month. We've got one month left in the book of Acts and we're going to push through some really powerful, big truths about our God. And so today what I want to do is kind of rev the motor, so to speak. Um, We're at the at the starting line of the last lap, I guess. We're going to rev the motor, sort of heat up the tires, I guess. And the, the next a uh, few weeks are going to be some intense teaching through the end of the book. So I want us to begin in chapter one, book of Acts, chapter one. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? I want you to read with me just three verses, verses six through nine. Just uh, the context, Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He spent 40 days teaching his disciples, having meals with them as a resurrected man, right? Can you imagine? And uh, they walk up to this hillside. Jesus is doing more teaching. And then the disciples come to him in verse six. When they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I can't think of a more impactful way to give uh, an important message than to give it while you float up into the clouds. And so, Lord, as we read this text, we realize the weight of it, the significance of it. This literally is the last words of Jesus on earth before he ascended, before you ascended into heaven. So the weight of these words, the significance of them, I pray, would rest on your church today. We've sung it, but Lord, we pray it now. Would you rise up, raise up an army in this place? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So two overarching truths from the book of Acts that we've seen. God has a mission. God has a mission. 
What is his mission? Well, his mission is to redeem for himself a people from every nation. To redeem for himself a people from every nation. I want you to look at what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter said, talking to the church that's been scattered in the midst of a lot of terrible uh, persecution under Nero. But he said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, Listen to this. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And one other text I want you to see in Revelation Uh, Chapter seven in verse nine, we have this fulfillment of the mission of God, a a picture of it. John gets a glimpse at something that is uh, coming, a a great reality. And in chapter seven of Revelation, verse nine, John says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Powerful stuff, right? Well, look, this thing we're doing called church, that's where it's headed. That's the fulfillment of this mission of God. And it is going to happen. Let me tell you three things about the mission we see here. This mission is for his glory. Peter told us in 1 Peter 2, he says, you've been brought out of darkness into light so that you may proclaim his excellencies. Your salvation isn't just for you. It's because he's he's called you out to proclaim his glory. This mission is for his glory. This mission is for all people. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. We've been watching through the book of Acts as the gospel has advanced beyond the Jews into Samaria and then to the Gentiles at large. We've been seeing the spread. And then we look at Revelation, how it tells us that the day is coming. And it's all building to this beautiful climax where around the throne will be gathered people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. All peoples. It's for all peoples. And then this mission. This is what I love. Will be accomplished. Church, we can take great confidence in the reality that God's mission will not fail. We've seen that happen all through the book of Acts. You remember the warning in Acts 5, Gamaliel, uh, the, the, the Pharisee. He's like, hey, hey, we, do, you know, we don't want to be found fighting against God. If this is of God, we cannot stop it. Well, that was 2,000 years ago, right? Look at where we are today. His mission will be accomplished. So God has a mission and then... What we were learning in the book of Acts is God's mission has a church. God's mission has a church. I think a lot of times we want to reframe that. We want to think about, well, what is the, what is the church's mission? The reality is God has a mission and his mission has a church. The only reason we exist as a church is because God has a mission. 
We are the vehicle through which he wants to accomplish his mission. Have we, have we got a hold of that reality? The church only exists because the mission of God is yet accomplished. God is redeeming people and then empowering those people by his spirit to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. Three things about us as a church. Here's the reality we learn. First Peter 2. We have received mercy. We've received mercy. Why are you in this room? Why are you following Jesus? Let me, let me tell you one thing that's true. You are not chosen because of your goodness, but because of his. Isn't that good? We have received mercy. This is the, the, the way you come into the family of God is through mercy. The, the point of mercy is you, you're not getting what you deserve. Paul, who's going to write to Timothy, whose story is all through the book of Acts. He says, I have received mercy. He says, this gospel is of a of a man who came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief. But in Jesus, I have received mercy. Church, listen, our witness comes out of our weakness. It's not. It's not your goodness that God is using for his glory necessarily. He wants to use your your weakness that that magnifies his strength. The people allowed on this team are those who admit their need for a merciful savior. Do you know that? When it comes to the gospel, all you really need is need. And until you know you need Jesus, you'll never come to him to be saved. You come into his church by coming needy to Jesus. So we've received mercy. But in Acts 1.8, what we see is that we have received power, right? We've received power. And it's, it's wild. In Acts 1.8, the Bible says this. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The, the spirit of Christ equips, listen, the unlearned with wisdom. He equips the weak with strength. He equips the fearful with boldness. Do you remember the story in Acts 4? Peter and John have done some incredible things and they stand before the Sanhedrin. And they're, they're challenged. In whose name and by what authority you do these things? And they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and they're both and the Sanhedrin are like, man, these guys are uneducated, common men. But we perceive that they've been with Jesus. Isn't that wild? It's because they had an they had an uncommon power. They received the power of the Holy Spirit and it was Jesus working through them. So we've received mercy. We've received power. Get this. We are his Witnesses, We are his witnesses. So church, the truth I want you to walk away with today is this. We've been given the same Holy Spirit and are equipped for the same gospel mission. Now we go and tell. We go and tell. You will be my witnesses is what Jesus said as he ascended up into heaven.
What is a witness? What is a witness? I want to tell you two things that are qualifiers for a witness. You, you can't be a witness unless you've experienced something. You've either seen it, you've heard it, or you've experienced it somehow. You can't be a witness unless you have experienced it. And then you are not a witness unless you tell about it. If you're put on the stand, you swear in and you're put on the stand in a, in a trial setting and they, they've called you to go to the witness stand and you sit there silently, you are not a witness. You're just silently taking up a seat. When Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, what, what's required there is two things. You must have experienced something. You must have experienced Christ personally. And secondly, you must tell about this is what's required of a witness. Specifically, we bear witness to the saving grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's who we are and what we do. These first disciples, as they went, witnessing to the goodness and grace of Jesus, they discovered some radical truths about their God. And we've seen them too along the way. And what I want to do today is dig into these truths together. These truths still give us confidence for the mission today. So here they are. You ready? Here we go. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. That you'll receive power, but wait and pray. And so the disciples are praying. They're waiting in the upper room. And Peter stands up in the midst of them. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Listen, concerning Judas. Now, I don't know if you catch that, but Peter has learned a whole new way of interpreting scripture. He's reading the Psalms of King David and he's realizing that they are actually written about the events of Jesus's life, death, betrayal, including Judas. Peter had realized that every detail of Jesus's death had been planned out, even prophesied by King David hundreds of years before, down to even the intimate betrayal of of one of Jesus's own followers. So what Peter's discovering here, check this out, is that Jesus wasn't a victim of some evil plan. He is the victor in God's sovereign plan. Amen. When nothing is going like it should in your own life, know this, God is sovereign. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the promise of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes God sent the Holy Spirit to fill and empower his followers. A huge crowd is in the city from all over the known world, speaking many languages and of many different cultures. And here's what happened by the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples begin worshiping, praying and speaking in other languages. It's a miracle. And Peter, when, they, when he realizes there's a crowd gathering, listening and watching, Peter begins to preach. He preaches the good news of salvation in Jesus. 
That day, 3,000 people repented of sin, trusted in Christ, and were baptized. What, What a wild day. But if that wasn't crazy enough, what we see when we look into the scripture is we see that God is showing his ultimate sovereign control, even over the timing of circumstances, in a powerful Old Testament parallel. The very first Passover, we've just observed Passover with the little cup, a piece of bread, if that's what you call that thing, and the, and the juice. I hope none of us get sick off that, by the way. It was not good. But um, that is an observance of Passover. The, the, the Jewish custom, they used to observe Passover all the time, looking back to the day when God delivered the people out of Egypt and protected them from the from the death angel. The death angel would pass over if the blood had been applied. You see the principle? What Jesus did in the New Testament is he said, no, no, this is no longer about the death of a lamb protecting you from a death angel that passes over you. If my blood is applied, my body is broken, my blood is shed, my blood applied over your life, you will be saved. That's the new covenant. That's the new Passover. But Do you know what happened 50 days after the first Passover, the real first Pentecost? Well, that was when Moses had been up on the mountain. He had met with the Lord. He had received the the commandments from God. He came down off the mountain. What did he find? People worshiping a golden calf. And do you know that at the first Pentecost, when God gave the law, do you know what happened that day? 3,000 people were judged and killed by God. God is painting a radical parallel for us, a big picture story of what Pentecost is all about. When the law was given, it brought death. But when the Spirit came, He brought life. 3,000 dead, 3,000 saved. It's not coincidence, church. It's sovereignty. God is sovereign. And God is saving. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John went into the temple to pray. On their way, they encountered a lame beggar. Now, in the power of the Spirit, Peter looks at the beggar. He says, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. (laughs) That man was miraculously healed that day. And he went leaping and praising God. Another crowd gathers because everybody, everybody's like, wait a minute, I know this guy. I've been giving him money every day. I've seen this guy for years begging. He's lame. What happened? And the crowd gathers. Peter takes advantage of the opportunity, preaches the gospel again. This time, 5,000 people repent of their sin, trust in Christ, and are saved. God is saving By Acts chapter 5, more signs and wonders are being done by the apostles. It was so crazy that the people were bringing their sick out into the streets and laying them on the road, just hoping Peter's shadow would fall on them and they'd be healed. Acts 5, 14 says this. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Wow, more than ever, 
So not 3,000, not 5,000, but more than ever. And this is just chapter five, church, of 28 chapters. The rest of the book is the one radical story of God saving multitude after multitude and person after person. Our God is still saving people. Amen. David. Amen. God is still redeeming and rescuing people through the power of the gospel. When God speaks life into a dead heart, transfers someone from darkness into light, he redeems people. We ought to throw a party. There ought to be a celebration. Because the father's prodigal son has come home. It's a celebration, a party. God is saving. God, we learn through the book of Acts, is using suffering. God uses suffering. Now, our God is so sovereign that he, of course, uses miracles and healings to stir people to faith. But these early disciples quickly discovered that God also uses suffering. It should come as no surprise, really. Think about it. Jesus purchased our salvation through ultimate suffering. The suffering of Christ is the propitiation for our sin. And now the suffering of his church is the propagation of his salvation. So far in the book of Acts, the gospel has been spreading like wildfire through Jerusalem. So many Jews from all over the world have repented and trusted in Jesus. There have been some mild opposition. You know, these guys have been arrested. They've been beaten. Mild opposition, right? But in Acts chapter 7, it gets serious. Stephen, one of these early followers, has been seized. And he's put to trial. And on trial, he's given an opportunity to speak and he takes the chance to preach. He gives a speech, but it's a it's a sermon and he preaches the painful truth. He looks these Jewish religious elite people in the face and he says, God sent you your Messiah. But just like your forefathers, you rejected him and you have murdered the righteous one. As he preached Christ. They pummeled him with stones. They dragged him out of the city and stoned this man to a brutal death. But in his dying breath, he proclaimed that he could see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the Father. And then with his last little bit of strength, he prayed for his enemies. Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. His suffering mirrors our Savior's suffering. And the blood of this martyr would be the scattered seed of the church. You see, when Stephen was killed and the persecution fires began to rage, the church of Jesus didn't die. It spread. The overseer for Stephen's death was a Pharisee named Saul. He was holding the coats for the men doing his dirty work. 
And Saul's attempt to stomp out this Jesus movement was like kicking an anthill. It just spread it. The harder the persecution, the further the gospel spread. And here's the principle we're learning. God uses our suffering. In a beautiful picture of sovereign irony, this same Saul, now called Paul, is no longer the strongest opponent for the gospel, but the chief proponent. He's no longer the, pro- the persecutor, but the preacher. I'll say again, God uses our suffering. And even when the apostles are in prison, they're not defeated. They sing hymns. They pray aloud. Prisoners and prison guards alike are affected by their unwavering joy. God uses our suffering. I remember uh, a dear friend named Robert who um, battled with diabetes. And as he was getting older, they ended up amputating his leg. And it was a really tragic situation. Um, This guy loves to sing. Um, but this whole thing just sort of killed his song, the song in his heart. And I remember one day he called me from his rehab place. And he's there in rehab and he just calls me out of the blue and he says, Justin, I understand now why I've been through this. I said, really, what's going on? And he said, today the Lord put a song in my heart. And while I was doing rehab, I just started singing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. He said, I looked over and the lady next to me started crying. And the man next to her started singing with me. And they sang, he said, a, a small choir began to erupt in rehab. He said, Justin, this is four days in a row. I've been teaching a Bible study and singing to all my little crippled friends. <laughs> He said, we have a church in this place. I never knew God could use my suffering. God uses it, friends, he uses it. And if you're in a dark season, take heart. He has not left you. He is working in your waiting and there is purpose in your pain. We learn that God's gospel is spreading. God's gospel is spreading. Jesus had promised to empower these disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the promise of Acts 1.8. Well, by the time we get to Acts 8.1, this persecution under Saul has gotten wild. It's gotten crazy. The promise is seeing partial fulfillment. So through the persecution that began with Stephen's stoning, the people have now been scattered. Check this out. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the promise of Jesus to spread this gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria is already being fulfilled by chapter 8. And I love what chapter 8 verse 4 says. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They couldn't help it, guys. Their whole lives have been changed by this Jesus. And they couldn't help but tell of what they'd seen and heard. They are witnesses experiencing Christ and telling of his goodness. And in Acts chapter 10, God sends Peter to the home of a Roman centurion. This is wild, right? A Jew going to the home of a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Well, Peter is reluctant 
Because, well, that doesn't happen. But God showed him in Acts chapter 10 that he should not call any person common or unclean. And here we see that there's no place for prejudice in the church of Jesus Christ. And that God is redeeming for himself a global church. Peter goes and he preaches a beautifully concise gospel message. And in light of our title and theme for the day, that you will be my witnesses, I wanted to read what he preached in Acts 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, Paul's in the middle of a sermon, right? He's preaching, he's going, he's, everything's trucking right along. And all of a sudden, God interrupts his sermon. It shocks him. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. The Spirit of God fell on these Gentiles. And Peter is so blown away. He cannot believe it. But they heard the word of the gospel. They believed and they received God's spirit. Peter actually looks around. And he goes, uh, does anybody have an objection to baptizing these people? <laughs> and they baptize him. And here we see that God's gospel is spreading. He's not just a Jewish Messiah. This is not just a Jewish gospel. But it's to every nation, to every tribe, to every language, to every people group on the planet. That is our mission. And we are his witnesses. Now, how is this gospel spreading? Well, it spreads because God is sending. God is sending. We get to Acts 13 and what we see is that the church in Antioch became a missionary sending church. As the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Barnabas and guess who? A guy named Saul <laughs> and send them out. Now, think for a second just how crazy this is. How, how did this gathering of believers get started in Antioch? Well, Acts chapter 11 tells us it explains in Acts eleven nineteen and 20. It says now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And as they went, they went preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them. So get this. The persecution that arose over Stephen ultimately starts a church in a city called Antioch. Are you tracking? Who was over the persecution of Stephen? Saul. Are you tracking? So Saul starts and spreads this movement of the gospel that plants a church in Antioch. Well, later we're going to find out Barnabas is, is pastoring that church and he's not a great teacher. And so he calls this guy named Saul, who's been converted on the road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, would you come and teach? And so Saul travels to Antioch 
and begins teaching these new believers that he actually helped start this church. Saul teaches them for about a year or so, and then the, the Holy Spirit speaks, and it's like, church, we want you to send out Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have for them. Now, I don't know if you're tracking, but here's what's happened. Saul, the persecutor, unintentionally started a church that would eventually send him out as a missionary. Our God is sovereign. He is good. And he is sending. He's ascending God. Our God is a sending God. Probably the most known verse in the Bible says that God the Father so loved the world that he, what? Sent his one and only son. God the Son came to save sinners through his sacrificial death and resurrection. Then the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to empower everyday people for an incredible mission. In the book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit is equipping and sending his church, his people to preach Jesus to all nations. And now the Lord is still sending out all believers, everyone in this room that claims to know Jesus Christ and has the Holy Spirit. You have him for this purpose to go and tell of the goodness of the grace of God. So let me ask you this. Why does all this truth matter for you? Why does this truth matter? Here's a few takeaways for you. And I want to walk back through these big truths. How does God's sovereignty matter to you? It matters like this. God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah tells us his thoughts are not our thoughts. He is sovereign. His ways are better. His thoughts are higher. But to follow King Jesus is to submit to him as ruler over your life. Even if it means some time in prison here or there. Even if it means being stoned or lowered in a basket over a wall. It's to submit to the plan of God for your life. We can trust him even in the worst of situations that God is in control. And that's not based on my authority or the sufferings I've been through. It's based on this book and the sufferings of the saints. So surrender your life and your need for control and trust that he is working as Paul would later write. He's working all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He is sovereign. You can trust him. Secondly, why God is saving? Well, fellow believer, Jesus bought you with his blood. He bought you with his blood. So he redeemed you. First Peter 2 says, so that you would sing his praises, proclaim his excellencies, proclaim the gospel. He saved you so that like there's a purpose for your salvation. I want you to think for a minute about the leper who was healed by Jesus, the touch of Jesus. Think about the blind man who. After meeting Jesus, walked away able to see. Think about the man lowered through the roof by his friends who had faith in this man, Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. And then said, take up your bed and walk. Let me tell you something about these people. 
You could not stop them from witnessing about the goodness of God. You couldn't shut them up. They, they had experienced something too good not to talk about it. This is the way the gospel should impact us. Ultimately, Jesus came to cleanse people of sin. And if you're a follower of Christ and you're not radically telling people about him, here's the thing. You don't know how bad you were. You don't know the depths of your sin. You don't know. The danger is wrath that Jesus rescued you from. That hasn't gripped you. If it grips you, you can't help but tell people. You'd be like the woman at the well that ran to the city. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She's so gripped by his mercy, she can't help but be a missionary. God is saving. And as we go and tell people about the transforming grace of Christ, God will continue to save through you. And you will be. You'll party. You'll throw a party. Your life will be filled with parties. Celebrating the saving work of Jesus. What about suffering? Well, even in your most difficult days, when you're treated unfairly, when people spread lies about you or your family, when you get the news that it's cancer or when suffering settles in on you and it just seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. This depression is a deep, dark thing. Well, these are the moments when Christ and the goodness of the gospel can really shine. Diamonds, the beauty of a diamond is best portrayed on a black velvet. And the beauty of the gospel can sometimes be best seen on the blackness of our suffering. Rather than complain, these early followers of Jesus, they sang in prison. They prayed for those stoning them. They rejoiced for being considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. And that enduring joy and kingdom mindedness is what baffles the world. God sometimes chooses suffering to spread the good news of Jesus. The gospel began with Jesus' suffering and many times it spreads through ours. Two more. We're finished. The spreading of this message. Well, the message of hope in Jesus Christ alone must spread through us. We are plan A. There is no plan B. The church. It was never meant to come to us. It was meant to go through us. As a church, our aim, Mountain View Church's aim is to make disciples who make disciples. And to plant churches that make disciples that make disciples. The goal is to spread the hope of salvation in Jesus. And if we keep laser focused here, we will find ourselves riding Holy Spirit waves. Do you know what I'm talking about? When things happen that you can't explain, when stuff's going on that's out of your control and you can't even keep up with the move of God, that's when you know you're on his mission. Church, let's resolve to join him in that kind of work. And lastly, our God is ascending God. How does that matter to you? Well, I'm dreaming of a church where we regularly celebrate sending people out. Sending people away on mission for Jesus. Maybe it's a career change 
or graduating college seniors. And we would celebrate sending them. We've invested, we've discipled into them a culture of disciple making, a love for Jesus Christ, a radical abandonment to the gospel. And now we send them out to impact the world. And I want to celebrate that. I want to be a sending church. I want to see people learn to be sojourners here. That this place is not our home. So the gospel impacts how we spend our money, how we use our free time, how we raise our children and on and on and on. We live as intentional guests in this world. It's funny because that's how Jesus was. Think about the incarnation of the son of God for a moment. He was the ultimate sojourner, wasn't he? He came here to be among us, but he came on a mission. He came knowing he was going. He wouldn't plan to stay. This place was never his home. And Jesus said, just as the father sent me, even so, I'm sending you. So as our worship team comes this morning, just to lead us in a time of reflection and thinking about all that God's led and taught us through the book of Acts. I want to encourage us, church, let's give our lives for the glory of King Jesus. Among our neighbors and among the nations. He is still sending us to save them. We are his witnesses. So church, hear the words of Jesus as he floated up with those first disciples. Hear his words to you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. We've experienced him, and now we go and tell. Let's pray.